Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like, where are you from? There was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode 4, A Jump in Time, September 1976, Lillian. Lil and I met at the bus stop the first day of school, and from that moment on, we were inseparable. So much so that people thought we were gay. We weren't. We just had the kind of friendship that comes along once in a lifetime, if you are lucky. A camaraderie that merges two identities into one, and soon enough you become known by one name. Ours was... Chris and Lil. Lil was much prettier than me. She had the more acceptable looks, skinny with a shapely round bottom that wore well in her bell-bottom blue jeans, long feathered dirty blonde hair, high cheekbones, and a slight plumpness to her well-formed lips. Her presence was laid back, and yet she was up for anything. Lil and I had a lot in common, considering we were opposites. We were brand new to smoking, we came from dysfunctional families, and we loved the Rolling Stones. As a matter of fact, we considered ourselves the Mick and Keith of Stiff Station. We both preferred Keith, so we didn't officially delegate who was who. We just became their essence, because like houses, trees, and roads, every neighborhood needed a set of the Glimmer Twins. Lil came from a large family, all colorful but not very pretty. Rednecks, you could say. Most of them smoked pot but hated hippies, a contradiction that took me by surprise. To them... I was a nigger-loving, hippie fag, and they did not want their little sister hanging out with me. They were a vicious bunch, and the first ones to spread the rumor that Lil and I were gay. We were self-conscious about it, so we spent the fledgling days of our friendship hiding in my bedroom, getting baked, and listening to albums. Lil and I hated school, which wasn't saying much, since Arkansas was rated 49th in the country for academic standards while we attended. It was also a place where people thought we were gay, and because of that, the only time we were deemed acceptable was during recess when a large group would gather together to engage in a cheap high. We would put our hands around our necks and squeeze until we almost passed out. This would make us dizzy and lightheaded, 
and brought excitement to a long and boring day. We were definitely welcomed in this little gang, and people seemed to like us better when we were almost unconscious. Lil and I grew quickly into our new identity as heads. This required smoking a lot of pot, skipping school, and playing pinball down at the 7-Eleven. We didn't have money to buy our weed, so we jumped into cars with men who would get us high for free. It was an easy task because Lil was so pretty and all the boys wanted to be with her. We were either too stoned, too stupid, or too wanting of excitement to be afraid of anyone. So we got into a lot of cars with a lot of weirdos. Most men expected something in return for sharing their weed, even if it was just keeping them company and driving around all night. Part of the adventure was freeing ourselves, unscathed, from whatever perceived debt we had just incurred. Lil was amazingly stone-faced and would just open the car door and walk away without a word. I, on the other hand, would try to smooth things over by explaining that we weren't prostitutes, we were just looking to get high, and then I would ramble on with overly sincere apologies. When we tired of the 7-Eleven, we would hang out in the park hoping that something new and different would happen. It never did. It was always the same old bullshit, night after night after night. My friendship with Lil became a threesome with a boy named Gary. On a day when the neighborhood bully, a rather handsome deaf boy, was threatening to kick our ass for being queer. Gary, a Cajun from Louisiana whose family kept pet alligators, appeared out of nowhere, raised his fist, and chased the boy down the street. Lil and I were elated, relieved, and couldn't believe his heroic actions. And in that moment, a best friend triangle was created and lasted for many years to come. Gary introduced us to Jim and Brenda, a childless couple in the neighborhood whose house all the kids went to to get high and party. Jim was a skinny toothpick of a man who wore glasses and was missing several teeth. He had dark, greasy hair and a pallid complexion which had long since given up any pretense of good health. Brenda was a large, squishy woman with long, stringy hair and a sweet yet subservient disposition. They were warm, gracious, and simple, and their house reeked of animals, old furniture, and bong water. It was decorated with crafty knickknacks made out of yarn, needlepoint, and the Confederate flag. I thought the stuffed animal collection was a little weird for grown-ups, but Jim and Brenda's sweetness outweighed their lack of aesthetic. 
As long as you didn't do any deep thinking, this place was extremely comfortable. Lil and I met a lot of cute boys at this house and it became our home away from home. Jim and Brenda considered us their kids and in our minds, we had finally found a place where we belonged. It was there that I met David, the boy who took my virginity, for real this time, not like the uncertain event in Fayetteville. It happened mid-afternoon under the bleachers at the deaf and blind school. I felt completely exposed and unnerved, but that's where David took me. There was no foreplay, no sweet talk. He just pulled his pants halfway down and laid his body on top of mine. His considerable weight pressed me into the rocky soil, leaving bruises and the imprints of stones on my back. I was dry and he was wide, and it was one of the most anticlimactic and painful experiences of my life. I was humiliated and felt a bit like a whore, but glad to get it over with. In our town, it was not cool to be a virgin, or so they said. But losing my virginity under the bleachers did not make me feel hip, cool, or loved. It made me feel available. Nineteen seventy-seven, another tumultuous spring in Arkansas. Sometime around the end of May, I walked into the kitchen of the Heartbreak Hotel after what was most certainly a horrific day of school. All the housemates, including Sue, were sitting around the table wearing long faces. Within one second, my body went tight and the walls closed in around me. I felt claustrophobic because I knew that something was wrong, seriously wrong. For some reason, I felt strangely unfamiliar in my own surroundings and my stomach tensed and started to rumble. The heartbreakers, plus Sue, just looked at me. They were afraid to speak. You could see it in their eyes. I couldn't imagine what had happened, but I knew it was bad. There was less and less air in the room, and I became dizzy, anticipating the news. I don't remember who started talking first, but someone blurted out that Gorton had been in an accident. He was in the intensive care unit at a hospital in the state of Oklahoma. I hadn't been paying much attention to Gorton lately, so I was only vaguely aware that he had gone there to perform a wedding. The groom, who was a friend of his, was in a motorcycle club, and the bride-to-be was blind. The details of the accident weren't altogether clear, but the most important elements told the story of a ride through the woods, while most certainly drunk and stoned, a rock flying through the air, no helmet, and a motorcycle landing on top of Gordon. Or, as someone had it, Gorton hit a tree. 
His brain was severely damaged, and he was in a coma. Sue and I would need to get there as soon as possible. A small plane with toxic fumes shook and rumbled all the way to Oklahoma. When we arrived at the hospital, I didn't want to go into the room where Gorton was. It took Sue a lot of conjoling to get me into the intensive care unit, and the minute I passed through the doors that warned me not to enter, my body started shaking. It was the smell that hit me first. Creepy, like nothing I had ever smelled before. I could only imagine it was the combination of sanitized air, fucked up blood, and open flesh wounds. The smell and the reason for the smell scared the shit out of me, and my first instinct was to run. Sue put her hand on my back to guide me, or more realistically, to gently push me as I walked lightly, tiptoeing towards Gorton's bed. I took baby steps because I was in no hurry to get there. I could hear the rubber tread of my sneakers squeaking over the hypnotic metronome of beeping, the hushed roar of machines working, and the sad sound of someone weeping. One baby step after another led me to Gorton, who did not look like himself, with the endless amounts of tubes flowing in and out of his body. Flew it in, flew it out, Breathe in, breathe out. He didn't have eyes. He had big purple mounds where the eyes used to be, and his head was swollen and sat propped up on his skinny, lifeless body. His hair was shaved off, and his body was still dirty with patches of dried blood. My knees began to buckle and I thought I was going to throw up. I turned in slow motion and ran out of there. I ran all the way outside, a place where I thought I could breathe. Sue and I sat on a bench, silently, under the hot Oklahoma sun. The air, which seemed so fresh and sweet, wasn't really, because it was hot and sticky but nonetheless defied the logic and the reality of what was lying up there in that hospital bed. People strolled about to and fro as if they didn't have a care in the world, and I wanted to be them. Gorton was gone somewhere in coma land, and the world just went on about its business. There was something reassuring yet rude about it all. There was no telling when or if Gorton would emerge from his coma, so Sue and I flew back to Little Rock. Sue thought it was important that I finish the last few days of the seventh grade, as if it mattered. The only things that I had learned so far in that stupid school were how to make a wooden stool in shop class and how to clumsily proclaim in French, Je m'appelle Tina. Arkansas was said to be 15 years behind the times, and it would probably take Pulaski Heights Middle School 
that long to acknowledge or notice that I had changed my name to Chris. June 6, 1977, came hard and fast like all Mondays, mean and nasty. Coming home from school, I walked through the doors of the Heartbreak Hotel where all the heartbreakers had gathered once again. Deja vu and no need to explain. Gordon was dead. In that moment, I hated everyone. I could feel the explosion coming, so I got on my bicycle and pedaled as fast and as hard as humanly possible. I did not obey the laws of traffic, and I ran through every intersection with an unidentified suicide wish. I started to cry, which did not help, so instead, I began to scream at the top of my lungs, not caring who heard or what they thought. I was so fucking mad, the maddest I had ever been in my life. What the hell was wrong with Gorton, and why would he do such a stupid thing? I rode my bleary-eyed suicide mission all the way to Jim and Brenda's house, and once arrived... I dropped my bike on their scabby, poop-infested remnants of a lawn, slammed through the wooden front screen, which hung feebly on its hinges, and presumptuously collapsed on their threadbare couch. I buried my face in a needlepoint pillow and blurted out, Gorton's dead. They were so kind as to not ask me the details of Gorton's death, details that they wouldn't have gotten anyway because I couldn't speak. Every misery that I had ever known seemed to gush out of me in an endless stream of sobbing. It took hours before I could lift my head to receive and smoke the joint they had rolled for me. They indulged me as I played the song Landslide over and over, rocking back and forth on their couch like someone in a psych ward. I could tell that I was scaring them, but at the same time, they seemed honored that I had chosen their house in which to suffer. Dipping in and out of consciousness, I watched as the muddied memories and the stoned images flooded my brain and then receded. One such recollection came rushing at me while curled in the fetal position. I see me as a young child, maybe two, maybe three, crawling around on a carpeted floor wearing a bright red velvet dress. 
I remember this dress because it was my favorite, and I was only allowed to wear it for Sunday dinner or a Catholic holiday. My grandfather, tall and stoic, was standing at the kitchen counter with his back to me. I watched as he poured a teaspoon of sugar into his coffee, stirred, and then fell to the ground. He had a suit on, and he fell straight over. He looked like a log lying in the middle of the kitchen floor. The kitchen was a dimly lit box of a room, which did not appear to have any windows. The house was silent, and he didn't move. We were all alone. My grandfather made death look easy and without consequence. Gorton did not. He left this world a bloody, swollen mess of a man, and the consequences of his death, as I was soon to learn, would be severe and reverberating. I did not attend Gorton's memorial in Little Rock because I could not get off the couch. Gorton Darling Hit, born September 1st, 1948, died June 6, 1977. Gorton wrote this for the Crisis Center newsletter shortly before his death. There's a place in my head I like to go whenever the accidental moment happens to come. Never planned, but always welcomed. It is a place where my imagination runs wild, and I am free to dream the incredible, resting assured that even if it can be, and often, from where I sit, is. How I'd like to share these thoughts with people who don't fear the impossible. The dreamers, the people who believe in humankind's ability to fly before there are airplanes, the fools who explore mental, physical, unreached limits, lonely dreamers, all of them, seeking someone with whom they can share their madness. I suspect that there is a dreaming madman in all of us, desperately awaiting permission to be free. I am beginning to realize that that is what this life represents to me, permission and a call. Is there anyone out there who wants to share a fantasy? Make it happen? Imagine with me?